Thanks for joining us at the Business Growth Cafe, where each week we select from a menu of topics for a focused discussion with an industry expert to provide insights that can impact your business's growth with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Hi, I'm Angelo Ponzi, your host here at the Business Growth Cafe, and thank you for joining us. We are living in a very challenging time. We are experiencing a health crisis, the coronavirus, which has killed over 200,000 people in the U.S. alone at the time of this recording. We now wear masks to protect ourselves from this virus. We work at home. We're not socializing as much. We're living in more isolation than we ever have before. This takes a toll on all of us, even the most healthy individuals. But it's not just the current state we are living in that is impacting our mental health. It has existed way before this pandemic and will exist after. So today I'm pleased to have Sally Spencer Thomas here with us to discuss mental health in the workplace and home. And this is a timely topic because September is also Suicide Prevention Month. So stay tuned. This is an important discussion for everyone listening is you or someone you know may need help. The decision to grow your business is easy. Making it happen, now that's the challenge. We tend to think of sales and marketing as the drivers of growth. The reality is there are multiple factors that can impact the growth of your business. Internal factors such as operations, finance, HR, along with the external pressures of your competition, the economy, technology, and politics, as well as the environment, can all have their toll on your growth strategies. I'm Angelo Ponzi, your host at the Business Growth Cafe. Each week, I select from a menu of topics that can impact your business's growth to discuss with business leaders like yourself. We explore the influences, the barriers, the challenges, and the opportunities that can directly and indirectly impact your growth strategies and offer insights and actionable steps you can incorporate into your business today. Please subscribe to the show on any major podcast platform we can also learn more about the show at theponzigroup.com. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned, I have a special guest. Sally Spencer Thomas is here with me today to discuss how to recognize and work to prevent and mitigate, really, mental health issues, not only in the workplace, but as home as well. Sally, welcome to the show. Angelo, I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. This is this, as I said in my opening, this is really going to be a, a special show for those listeners. And so I'm, I hate to use the word excited because I'm not excited over this topic, but I'm excited over sharing information and education. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of that today. And this is an an incredible uh, social issue, if you will. And and again, I think that um, as you, as I mentioned, and you had pointed out, this is uh, Suicide Prevention Month. And so I think this topic is is incredibly important, and especially in these crazy times that we're living in. Some people are working, some people are home, kids are getting back to school, some are staying home. So it's we're experiencing obviously something we've never experienced in our lifetime, and, and hopefully our children will never experience it again. So to, to put things in, in kind of context, what I'd like to do is have you tell the audience who you are, you know, what your mission is, what you do. And we're going to get into a lot of different areas. But the one thing I want you to tag on is your personal story, because I find that it's that personal story that really kind of drives 
you and, and others that have been in these kinds of situations that really help you, I'll say, be a champion to to bring this to the world and attention to this particular topic. So I'm going to turn it over to you for a few minutes and um, so we can put things in, in perspective. Thanks so much, Angelo. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to be here to share this message because there's not a family really that in, in one way or another has not been impacted by a mental health crisis or suicide. So it's important that we talk about it. My family's certainly no exception. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist by training and had been in the field of mental health for about 16 years when my brother died by suicide in 2004. My younger brother, my only sibling, um, battled fiercely against bipolar condition that proved to be fatal on December 7, 2004. And in the wake of his death, uh, many of us very close to him, my family, his closest friends, and our acute grief resolved to do something uh, that was bold and that was gap-filling. There were lots of other families out there in the same space doing really important work and there was no need to duplicate that. So we went out and tried to figure out where the biggest gaps were and then to figure out a strategy that would really make a difference. And one of the things that no one ever taught me, even though I had really great training in graduate school, um, no one ever told me that the majority of people who died by suicide were very much like Carson, uh, men in their working age. 80% uh, of people who die by suicide are male. Most of them are in the working years. And most of them never seek any type of mental health support. So they're white knuckling it through all kinds of, of despair and distress. Uh, and they have one attempt and it's fatal. So that seemed to be a pretty important gap to fill. And we figured if we were going to reach kids in schools, we'd reached working age adults in the workplace. And so this is this has become a life calling. I remember I was in uh, suicide loss uh, support groups um, with other family members who had lost loved ones to suicide. And I remember thinking, damn, somebody's really got to do something about this. And then feeling tapped on the shoulder and like, oh my God, it's me. Um, and so over the years, I uh, left um, a stable uh, job at, at a university um, and we started a nonprofit to do this work. And that has evolved. In the in the early days of, of this work, we, cr we created uh, the nation's first workplace suicide prevention training back in 2007. And we were like literally banging our heads against the wall to get anyone to pay attention. It was so frustrating because we knew you know, we went to these employers and we said, please do this work. You will save lives. You will make a huge difference. And employers would turn to us and they said, this is not a workplace issue. This is a medical issue. People need to take this stuff up with their doctors. And we would say, but they're not. And they're here. They're working. And their chances are good. You have a number of people on your workforce that are experiencing this at some level. So it wasn't until uh, years later, until the CDC started coming out with reports that ranked industries by suicide rate, that all of a sudden workplaces and professional associations started leaning in. And as you tipped up, Angelo, this is the year that it has become a top health and safety priority for workplaces across all kinds of industries and sizes and sectors and geographies. This is the year that many workplaces are making suicide prevention and mental health promotion uh, one of their top health and safety priorities. Hmm. You, you, it's interesting. I worked for, um, I worked for many large corporations, but I remember the, the, I'll call it the second to last one I worked for. We used to, cause I was in leadership. We used to have a lot of training, but usually around sexual harassment and stuff like that. And I honestly can't recall that we had any mental health 
awareness training. And, and, and you said something that I found really interesting that, that there's actually a statistic, and I'm a statistic guy, so I should know this, but <laughs> that there is actually a ranking of you know, suicides, if you will, mental health issues by business category. I mean, that's just mind boggling to me that it's so prolific that there's actually a statistic to show the kinds of industries that you're in. Yeah, the, the CDC started coming out with these reports in 2016. Um, the latest one came out January 20th, 2020. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in their next report. But um, your occupation is listed on your death certificate. So they just needed to to get that organized um, and then um, report it out. And so it's very consistent. The findings are very consistent. So far, anyways, COVID might you know, put it everything on its head. Uh, but it's male dominated industries primarily that rise to the top because 80% of people who die by suicide are men. Now that doesn't mean that uh, women's suicidal despair also does not impact workplaces. It most certainly does. Um, whether it's thoughts or attempts or death, it's just that uh, the death data is a little easier to capture. So that's kind of been the first foray into this is just looking at the death data. So so we talk about workplace. And so what I, I want to make sure the audience understands and, and I want to understand, it's not people committing suicide at work. It's basically the activities at work, the stress levels, the angst that, that drive people to have issues. Great clarifying question. So uh, the, the, the answer is multifaceted. So yes. In one part of our conversation, we are talking about what we call the psychosocial hazards at work, the things that happen at work that drive people to despair. Um, they might be work design issues like job autonomy and job variety, this thing we call effort reward imbalance. Um, it could be that people feel like they're a cog in a wheel of somebody else's profit making and they don't have any connection to the purpose or mission. Um, it could be all kinds of toxic relationships that happen at work, bullying, hazing, harassment, discrimination, prejudice, and so on. Um, it could be the fact that work often really spills over into family life and vice versa. Or it could be things that are just disruptive that happen at work that really uh, alter people's mental health status. So sleep sleep disruption, for example, or, or exposure to certain types of trauma. Um, so all of these work design elements or work uh, toxicity or job strain issues definitely contribute to uh, increased risk of suicide. There's tons of studies out there. Um, and also this conversation is about that a suicide death, whether or not it happens on a job site, a suicide death happening on a job site is a relatively rare phenomenon. But that doesn't mean that a suicide death that happens somewhere else is not also impacting that that work site, right? People are often close friends. Uh, the trauma and the grief around suicide is is very deep and personal for people. Um, even family members who die by suicide or attempt suicide are um, that 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 trauma ripples into the workplace mm -hmm. and and impacts it impacts the people left behind. Yeah, you know, you said most people have some, you know, six degrees of separation, if you will, of, of knowing somebody. And I, and actually, I, I had a cousin who, well, I don't know how old I was. I was certainly young. He was he was more of my sister's age, and, and they were all friends. And he committed suicide. And to this day, they still don't know why, 
um, you know, there's suspicion that the wife knows, but, but she's not talking. And, and I even called my sister prior to this conversation to see if there's ever been any clarity in it. And it, and it was just one of those things. I mean, he was a great guy, cheerful, everything seemed wonderful. And, you know, one day he walked out into the woods and, and, and committed suicide. And, and here it is. I mean, this is like 45, 50 years later and it, and it's, there's still that mystery and, mm-hmm. and that angst. And especially when I talked to my sister who was, they used to hang out. I mean, they were in the families. They, they grew up together as that generation. And, you know, to this day, it still, it still impacts her and it's, and it's, it, no, yeah, it's crazy. It echoes for a long time. And, and it, what you just described is what we call um, my mentor, Frank Campbell um, coined the phrase, uh, you fall into a canyon of why. Why did they do this? Why didn't they tell me? Why were they, what, what was driving this? Why, 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 why? Uh, and you never get the answer, of course, because the person's not there. Even suicide notes usually don't give you any kind of closure or an answer often. So this aching feeling is really hard for families to process um, because there, there's no opportunity to say goodbye. There's no closure. There's no understanding what happened. Uh, and for our grieving process, we really often do need those rituals um, to honor the life that was lived and uh, and mourn. And we don't get that in the same way with suicide death. Mm-hmm. There was a, a statistic that I saw, and I, I'm sure I got it off your website. <clears throat> it said in approximately 80% of all people who die of suicide are working ages 18 to 65. And Really, this is where prevention, intervention, and, and some kind of a response really kind of starts. But the question, and if we've kind of talked about this a little bit, I mean, there's really no one size fits all messaging. It's like in marketing, right? If I'm segmenting my audiences to change their behavior to buy a particular product, I mean, you're really kind of doing the same in a sense that you have to start kind of overall with an overall message and, and hopefully as it gets down to whatever their particular issues, I, I'm fishing here because it's you know, way outside of my, my knowledge base, but I just have to believe it isn't just like one message that, that, that resonates with people like myself who's, who are aware and paying attention to what's going on or versus the, the people that are actually being impacted. Yeah. Everybody comes into this conversation in a different path, but we can all participate in the conversation. So I guess if there's one unified message is that everybody can play a role in suicide prevention, regardless of who you are. Um, and when it comes to workplace, every workplace can do something about suicide prevention. Uh, we, we just launched uh, a year ago, the national guidelines for workplace suicide prevention, where we came up with, um, and we being three large uh, national organizations for suicide prevention, all partnering with scores of voices that have come to the table to help us shape it on what the best evidence-based practices are from what we call upstream, midstream, and downstream, um, how to prevent it, how to intervene, and how to cope with the crisis or how to respond to the crisis through a workplace framework. Um, So there's a lot different workplaces can do. And then, yes, within that, we segment out by industry, by role, by lived experience, right? If you're a loss survivor, you're going to have a different perspective on this versus if you've lived through a suicide attempt or if you've been a caregiver for someone in your life, uh, a support person. So there's all types of ways once you get into the conversation about suicide prevention to find where you fit and what you're, what you know, what role you can play. 
Mm-hmm. The, you know, when, and I've worked at, as I mentioned, I mean, I've worked in, in small companies and I worked at very large companies and, and there's usually that gatekeeper that, and I'm going to say it's the HR department that, you know, really organizes and, and, and brings forth this kind of information, but it's also leadership, right? It's, it, it's not just the HR person or HR manager working on their own behalf. You know, really, ultimately, they're going to go up to leadership and leadership is going to be accepting and understand the impact that it can have not only on on people. You know, this is a business show as well. So the impact that it has on their businesses. And and, and so when you're out there speaking to 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 business, am I right? Your your targets, the HR folks, or do you really have to go in and do a lot of education at, at the upper upper levels? But that's so interesting that you frame it that way. HR actually has been the hardest nut to crack in this whole thing. Really? Oh yes, wow. it's been um, it's been leaders uh, that have driven it. Uh, I work with a number of executives for for fairly large companies at this point, and it's almost off almost always the leader that opens the door uh, because they've been affected in some way. Sometimes they've lost an employee. Sometimes they've had a family member that struggled. Sometimes they have lived through depression or addiction, and they want to. Um, help empower their community to be more proactive around mental health. Um, the lead, when the leaders bought in, it makes a huge difference because they are able to, of course, allocate the resources, but they are able to kind of do some messaging that really makes this sticky. They can say things like, "Here, here's why it matters to me. And I'll, I'll just give one example that I love to share. There's a, a construction contractor here in Colorado uh, that started with me on this journey back in 2013 before anyone else was talking about it. And he he came to me and he said, listen, when you talk about who's at risk for suicide, you're talking about my folks. Uh, and I said, I know. He said, well, I don't want to wait until we have a tragedy. Help me figure out what we need to do here. And so we did a whole bunch of things. We did lots of listening sessions and trainings and communication strategy. But most importantly, before we did all that work, we we coached the leaders on how they were going to um, communicate this priority. And so they came out and they said, "Listen, this is this is a this is our number one health and safety priority for the year, and this is why it matters to our company. This is why it matters to our mission, and this is why it matters to me, your your leader." You know, and he was able to articulate specifically why this issue touched his heart and why he was such a champion of it. And that made all the difference in the world, um, especially when people have some form of lived experience that they can talk openly about. Uh, I know I think I shared with you Brad Feld, for example, venture capitalist mm-hmm. here in Colorado. He's just an amazing leader and advocate in this space. Right. And he's investing millions of dollars in these companies. And he'll say outright, your mental health is part of this investment. Um, and, and, you know, and he talks about his own experiences with, with anxiety and other types of mental health conditions and why it's so critical for, um, well, for everybody, but especially entrepreneurs and small business owners that have so much stress to really be proactive and mindful about their mental health. That's, that's terrific. You you know, I, 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 I'll, I imagine that someone who do people do people understand that they have a problem or is it is it just denial and hidden because you know if someone's in the workplace and and they're going through something I would imagine they're not going to raise their hand and say hey I've got I've got an issue and so does it become more observational from the people around them that call attention or do a percentage of people actually volunteer that they need help. 
Yeah, this is the culture we're starting to see shift, uh, largely because the younger workforce does not have nearly an issue around this as the older workforce does. So the younger workforce is changing the culture in very positive ways around mental health. Um, so both, both answers are true. So when a leader also comes out and said, yes, I've lived through something similar. And uh, when I reached out, it was really helpful. And I'm a better whatever leader person, family member, whatever. Um, that messaging really gives people hope that it's permissible and, and hope that things will get better if they reach out. The other important piece for for people of all roles is to do this reassurance that says, you know, if you are struggling in any way, come to me because I've got your back and we're going to persist in this together until we figure out something that's going to get you back on your feet. Um, those kinds of reassuring messages and, and also the, the familiarity with the resources all take down some of those barriers. Now, when people are in a tough spot, uh, sometimes there's good reasons why they don't um, disclose. Discrimination and prejudice is a real thing. Uh, and so people are starting to weed out workplaces where they feel that they will be biased against um, because all of us take our turn <laughs> in the dark place. There's nobody who gets through this life without going through a hard time. And if you can't trust your workplace to have your back when it's your turn, then you probably shouldn't be in that workplace <laughs> because it's not psychologically safe. Um, and, 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 and then when you have people that come through a hard time and you watch them be treated with dignity and respect and be, you know, reintegrated once they're back on their feet in a way that we would treat other people who may have gone through a car crash or had a heart issue or were fighting cancer. And you see that same level of support and dignity and respect, you know, like they mean it when they say we, we appreciate the whole person and you're not just a cog in the wheel of our, of our profitability, but we know you're a, our most important asset. And so we're willing to invest in your health in this way as well. Um, so, yeah, so people you know, do raise their hand more often than not lately. All right. All right. Good. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I've heard people say, you know, without customers, you have no business. And and I agree with that. But I also say without people, <laughs> you have no business either. Right. So it's they are truly, in my opinion, your greatest asset because, you know, there's lots of just statistics. We won't get into that. But, you know, a turnover and the cost of the company and things like that. On your site, you mentioned three steps in, in crisis leadership to help bolster mental health. What are those those three steps? Well, one of the things that came up, especially in, in the early months around COVID was just, you know, we were all reeling, like with the uncertainty and the adrenaline of what this meant for, you know, whatever, our health, our economy, all of those things. And what we know about when when we when people are facing that, leaders can do some certain things that can really help ground people. If you think about trauma uh, in particular, trauma is hard because it's so unpredictable. It's It feels so threatening and it just feels completely out of one's control. And so those three things are what we really emphasize to leaders who are trying to drive a, a, a community 
a, a work team or a whole a workforce organization, um, drive them to resilience by offering those things, especially being mindful. Small pieces of those things can make a huge difference for people. So instead of unpredictability, do we really know where COVID is going to be heading? Do we really know what our economy is going to look like in four months? We really don't. But I can tell you that tomorrow at nine, we're going to have a briefing or you know Friday at noon, we're going to have this workshop or whatever. Giving people little, little things that they can predict in their life when their life seems out of control or unpredictable. Um, the second one is about safety. And here we're talking about psychological safety. So there's lots of literature that's talking about now um, about how to build a strong, positive culture by really focusing on the tenets of psychological safety, helping employees create deeper bonds, supporting one another through hard times, really holding at a high level, trust, respect, um, integrity, and so forth. Uh, and when we do that, and we do that well, and also call out the bad stuff of bullying, ha hazing, harassment, discrimination, prejudice, and so forth, um, we can start to build that psychological safety that, again, helps people feel grounded when the world seems so unpredictable. And then the last one is about control. Um, when we have trauma, we feel like, the control has been taken away from us. And that's partly why it seems so scary. Uh, so giving people back a sense of control by offering them choices. Choices lets people have some agency. Do I want to do this or that? Should we do it now or later? Again, even the smallest pieces of choice can help people feel again that they have, they can feel like they can start to have some control over their life. So just as a, a general way to help leaders guide work uh, groups through crisis. Those are, those are three things just to be mindful of. Okay. You, you mentioned, we, we talked a couple stories now, but there was one that you mentioned as kind of, you know, the stories we've told is about, you know, the individuals, but you talk about one, uh, and I think it was a France telecom where mm -hmm. it was kind of the opposite where the executives were held responsible. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because again, it, it, there is responsibilities and, and, in a lot of different levels of the organization itself. And, and I think this is a really interesting story I'd like you to share. Yeah, these cases are now starting to show up all over. In fact, this morning I was interviewing um, one of the researchers that's been following this closely uh, over the last decade, where there have been a number of employees that have uh, kind of a similar uh, pattern of distress and despair that tragically results in a suicide, death, or an attempt. Um, and in, in France, this was a large telecom company called France Telecom, they're now called Orange, that um, what used to be a, a public organization and then transitioned to a private. And in that transition, they had to, they were forced to um, downsize. And the challenge was the workers were guaranteed their positions. So the only way that they could figure out to get rid of the employees was to basically do, uh, you know, psychological torture on them. Um, they took these fairly high trained and very committed uh, engineer type people and put them in unimaginable work situations, constantly moving them, uh, all kinds of bullying and harassment that happened that was, you know, documented through emails, um, you know, downsizing the 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 quality of their job to something meaningless uh in, in the hopes that they would voluntarily leave but instead of leaving uh over the span of of about a decade 66 people took their lives um wow. yeah yeah and uh and 39 of those families that were left behind um 
went to trial against this very large corporation to hold them accountable for causing the suicide of their loved one. And they won. Um, the, the courts, after a very long, long trial, decided that indeed the company was responsible and actually uh, sent the executives to prison and, and put a fine on it. It was a criminal case. So uh, we have now that case. Um, there, there was another case in France also where the workers were held to unimaginable expectations in their productivity. Uh, they took their, you know, the best workers and they kept squeezing them and squeezing them and squeezing them and squeezing them for more and more productivity to the point where even the most talented, most efficient, most committed, most loyal person is going to break. Um, and what we saw again there was a, what we're calling a wave of suicide deaths uh, that, again, people looked at the employer and said, you are responsible for this. They would have not have died if you had not done this to them. Um, and they, they were also went to trial. And then there was another one in, uh, in Australia, a similar kind of story. So we're starting to see this pop up more and more where people are understanding that suicide is not just the result of a mental health condition. That's been our narrative here in the United States, that it's all about depression. It's all about, you know, these mental illnesses that are driving people to suicide. And certainly mental health conditions do play a role, but not in every case. In some instances, it is what's happening in our environment, in our world, prejudice, discrimination, the way we treat each other. These things are also driving people to despair. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, <clears throat> I would imagine too, you know, th there is no criteria. There's, there's no, you know, persona like we might do in marketing. I mean, it's really, it, it could be in the home. It could be uh, school at work, age, gender, religion, ethnic groups, politics, uh, anywhere in the country. There's no boundaries around this, the, this situation. And, and, and so the really, I mean, it's in itself, it's its own kind of pandemic, if you will, it, that people need to be uh, aware of. But I, I wanted, I'm going to, I know this is a business show and we're talking about workplace, but I would be remiss if I did not bring in teens. And, and so my question, have you, in your research, seen an increase in, in teen suicide? I know there's a lot of pressure on the school levels. There was a, a young gentleman, it was a couple of years ago. I was working, doing some work in the education world. We were supposed to have a big event and it got canceled because he had committed suicide. And it was interesting that he wrote two letters, one specifically to his parents, but one specifically to the public, which his parents released. And, and it really talked about the pressure of, of school and, and the push to, to uh, you know, succeed and the grades and the SAT test and, and, and all that stuff. And, and you know, obviously he, he chose a different path as opposed to maybe seeking help. So but I also know that social media plays a role. So. Give me some perspective and some insights on, on teen suicides, if you will. So parents of young people who are working are also affected in the workplace when their teens or young adults are struggling about whether or not to stay. So, yes, it might be affecting the teen, but it's also affecting their parent or their older sibling who may be working. So it is a workplace issue when teens struggle. Um, a parent who's worried about their kid is distracted, to say the least. 
Um, so to answer your question about the, the research around trends, most definitely over the last uh 20 years, we have seen a, an increase in teen suicidal behavior uh, and in teen death. Um, and of course, this is very concerning uh, to all of us. Um, I just also want to put it in perspective that uh, our suicide rate for young people, zero to 19 years old, is about four per 100,000. And uh, for our older white men, that number is 52 per 100,000. So yes, we're very worried about teens for good reason. Young people shouldn't die from anything, let alone something so tragic and so early. Um, but there are, there are other groups that have much higher rates. Um, also our American Indian, Alaskan Native men have about 32 per 100,000. Veterans um, have about 30 per 100,000. Um, but that's it. Uh, a, a suicide death of a teen, a young person, um, is a tsunami in that family, in that school, and in that community. It is uh, a death unlike any other. Um, and one of the things that we also know to be true is that especially for young people, we have this thing called the exposure effect, where when there's one suicide death or even attempt, that people who are already vulnerable can become more vulnerable, more at risk for suicide because uh, you know someone has modeled for them. Uh, and so sometimes we'll see these these clusters of, of young people, if there's one death, we're bracing for the next attempt or the next death until kind of the the wave has has petered out. Um, mm -hmm. We are we're also really encouraged by our young people. Um, there's a number of youth programs that have evidence base to decrease suicidal intensity in our schools. Um, and the reason why they're effective is because the caring adults with all of their good intentions sometimes miss the mark. I don't know if you remember what it was like to be a teen, but listening to your caring adults, your parents, your teachers wasn't always your first go-to. It was your peers. And <laughs> so, <definitely> <laughs> right? <laughs> so these programs have given the reins over to the young people and said, you go figure this out, right? You find a way to reach your peers with messages of resources and resilience and recovery and a caring culture and looking out for one another. And, and they're brilliant. Not surprisingly, they are able, talk about your target marketing, right? They, they are able to reach their peers much more effectively than all the caring adults in their world. So the, there's a couple of programs that allow them to do that really creatively. One is, one's called Directing Change, and it in, in inspires the youth and teams to develop these one-minute public service announcements, and that it's a competition, and the winners get all kinds of accolades across, you know, across the state, across their school district, which then really positions them and this whole conversation within the context of leadership and creativity and teamwork and all of these values that we really want to bolster in youth and have that be their identity um, rather than, you know, brokenness and isolation and, and illness and all kinds of other things. Um, and really about peer support during these hard times. Like you look out for me because I know that, you know, I, 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 I'll look out for you when it's, when it's your turn. So that really great, um, ingenuity uh, and banding together in these young adults to make a difference in their schools seems to be very effective way to go. And I would think the, is, is they become into the workforce and, and move on in life. I mean, 
that'll change hopefully the dynamics um, of people that, like you say, older folks now that are more at risk is they become the older folks and the working right. generation, things will change. But well, you, I'm watching you, this you, in, a, in a number of work settings. They are changing the culture in workplaces because one of the pain points right now is that workplaces that are kind of set in their ways are not able to attract or retain young talent. Uh, young employees today are just not going to sit around and be abused. They're going to they're going to leave. So the companies that are really able to get get those really talented young workers are the ones that are looking at creating this caring culture, valuing mental health, valuing the whole person. So it is a it's a business decision as well. You mentioned um, some statistics on on kind of ethnic groups, if you will, in, in, in groups. You mentioned veterans, you mentioned uh, uh, American Indians, you mentioned older white guys, but you didn't mention uh, suicide in the bl uh, black community or the Hispanic community. Are, are they less, more, same? or They're less, um, and black women in particular have very, very low rates of suicide. Um, and there's lots of lots of things happening when we start to divide out by gender and race and age. Um, but one of the things that's culturally important to draw upon is that cultures that value self-reliance are more vulnerable to suicide. Cultures that value family and community and that, you know, again, pull together in hard times, kind of share the load of of struggle, they are protected. So a lot of, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of white culture is about, I got here cause I worked really hard and mm -hmm. I will persevere through any kind of hardship thrown at me because it's all about me and my hard work. Right. Um, when you have a fall, right, you get laid off or you get divorced or you have a bankruptcy or, whatever it is, and your identity has been defined by your hard work and your achievement, that is, that is a fall. That's hard and a, and a very lonely one. Whereas, you know, when your priorities have been your family, your community, your faith community, um, all of that, you can weather the storm of having these interruptions in other parts of your identity related to achievement a lot better because it's not that's not who you are it's just one part of you um, mm -hmm. so that's a kind of a, a general thing to say about culture um, and has it show and how, how it shows up in different races and ethnicities and genders but so many people and you made a great point that do define themselves by their work and their job mm -hmm. um, and, and and that loss has has a longing effect I mean it, it, uh, Long story short, I mean, I, I, I was working for a company. I had sold my my company to them and we, you know, another eight years, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually the, the parent company decided to move us and we we didn't move. And that that was almost 12 years ago. And I still sometimes rant and rave about, mm -hmm. <laughs> about the impact that that, that had because I, I had defined myself mm -hmm. that particular time by that job and, and one other thing that I was doing and more so than I do on anything else right now where I know other people who lost their job during COVID and it's, there's an impact that, you know, they're who they were is, is missing. Mm -hmm. And 
And so I can, I certainly can understand that loss. And, and like you said, there's so many factors that can drive somebody down the wrong path. And, and especially if they're me and me and myself and only me, um, and they're not reaching out and having a strong network, uh, could, uh, could be very, um, dangerous for them. Well, and the, I just want to be fully transparent. Like that has happened to me too. Uh, you know, the, the nonprofit that we started after my brother's death in his name, in his honor was like my calling in life. It became the thing that I did and who I was. And we, we faced a very, uh, devastating financial blow in 2012. And I got myself so worked up about it. Uh, the sense of failure, the sense of letting my brother down, like, I became incredibly depressed. I was dis disabledly depressed. I stopped sleeping. I stopped mm -hmm. eating. And my own and here I am. This is the work I do. And I fell into the the hole too. It happens. Right. And so my only thought process was I just have to work harder. If I just work harder, then all of these problems are going to go away. The money and I just ran myself into this hole um, that, you know, took a number of weeks to get out of when people tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know what, we love you. And we love you no matter what. If this thing comes back, if it doesn't, if you never do suicide prevention again, we love you. And I needed to hear that, you know, in a megaphone in my ear. But that's what, you know, that's what turned me around. So it's it's not it's a common pitfall that we we face when the mm -hmm. fall seems so great. And, and, and I and I think, too, I mean, I, I think about my circle of friends and I have some that, you know, God, we share probably way too much. And I have others that I've known for years and. You know, and it's about the activity that you happen to be doing at the time, but there's no kind of digging and, you know, hey, how you doing? It's like, you know, going back to a, a high school reunion, they go, hey, what have you been up to? It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's been right. 30 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I, I find that you have to have all different types of friends, right? But those that you can really, when, you know, I, I have a kind of a new group of the last couple of years and we do a lot of stuff together. But I always feel when they're probing and they're asking, it's they really want to know and want to have a discussion about it. Where I have others where, you know, we get together and, hey, how you doing? And I, I don't think it goes beyond that. You know, we, we're in the moment. We're doing other different things. So I think people, if you're listening out there, you, you really need to identify, you know, who you're, for me anyway, is my opinion. I'm not a doctor. But who you're, uh, I play one on TV, though. Um, <laughs> is to is to understand who you can go to and feel comfortable to your point you mentioned earlier that it, it, it's it's not something you need to hide it's not something you need to be ashamed about or anything else in having that strong network i mean is is incredible that yeah, you are 100 percent spot on so there's and there's tons of evidence for this as well everybody needs what we call an a team Right. Who's in the boat with you when you're hitting the rapids? Like who's who's going to pull with you when the hard times hit? And so we ask when we're trying to help people figure out how they're going to get through hard times. We ask these questions like, who do you trust? Who would come across town in the middle of the night to be with you, even if it meant they were incredibly inconvenienced? Uh, who brings out the best in you, right? And so if, if you don't have anybody in that list, that is work you need to do because everybody's going to need their A team at some point. And then again, for parents mm -hmm. worried about kids, that's another thing just to be mindful of. Are the, are the, the people, you know, the, the friends 
that are or the mentors and the teachers that are really close to your young person bringing out the best in them? Are, are they building these deeper trusting relationships that are filled with curiosity and wonderment and dignity and respect? Or are, are you know, are they not bringing out the best or are they, you know, it's more of an escape mechanism than really that true support. You're hundred percent spot on. And I'll take it just a step further. There is a very simple thing that people on the A team can do for one another. Um, that is so effective. It's, it's, it actually has gotten a couple of headlines in the last couple of years. What if suicide prevention is simple? Uh, and basically it's, it's, by giving each other what we call non-demand caring context. It's a very technical name for a very simple type of behavior, which is that randomly, that's an important part of it, randomly, you send one another a caring message. And you can actually have fun with it, um, but the gist is you just send them randomly I care about you. I th I'm thinking about you. You're on my heart. I see how strong you are. It's not a demand. You're not asking, how are you? No question they need to answer. It's just a very simple message. You know, I care about you. I love you. I see you. Whatever. You can send a cat video. That also works. And what happens is when people get. I have plenty of those, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> when people get these messages, it's like a little gift. It's a little gift and dopamine gets released. They see, they feel seen, they feel heard. You know, it's gotta be authentic. Um, but it's it's such a powerful small thing that actually has a tremendous amounts of research in it that helps people stay because they feel like they matter. I, I love that. Um, I literally, when you said that, I'm scrolling through my mind of all my, I have a couple of cats, I love cats. <laughs> um, and, and I get, I don't go online. I have a friend who goes online, looks at cats videos and I always make fun of her, but um, uh, I do love my cats. Uh, unfortunately, this has been uh, an incredible conversation. There's so much here to unpack that uh, the listeners and, and again, you business owners out there, this is something you need to be aware of. Uh, and as individuals and as human beings uh, for your employees, for your family, for your friends, for associates, anybody, you know, you need to step up. And I don't want to use that phrase, but I will, you know, see something, say something. I, I think that's appropriate here. But you need to be consciously aware um, and, and really understanding how people are feeling. And I'll just close with there are trainings that can help you have those conversations. People don't know how to start those conversations. They don't know what to do if the person says yes or no. Um, so there's a couple of trainings out there that can be delivered in a workplace setting in a very short period of time, like two hours. One of them is called Working Minds. It can be done in two hours. Another one's called Question, Persuade, Refer. It can be done in an hour and a half. You can do an online training. There's many ways to figure out how to have those conversations. Um, and then finally, to all the, the, all the business owners out there, please take the pledge, uh, workplacesuicideprevention.com. Uh, join the hundreds of employers that are taking the pledge to make suicide prevention a health and safety priority. Um, and there you'll get all kinds of information about action steps you can take to uh, bolster your community's resilience, as well as figure out strategies to help people through hard times. Um, so why don't you tell the audience how they can reach you specifically, your website, email, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. Sure. So 
Um, my name is fairly unique, Sally Spencer Thomas. So you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, all those social media places. I'm most active on Twitter and Facebook. Um, my website is sallyspencerthomas.com. I am um, a speaker, trainer, and consultant, and my specialty is workplace mental health and suicide prevention. And you also have a podcast. Want to tell I the audience? I do. About that? I do have a podcast. It's called Hope Illuminated. Um, I do get the privilege of doing this work internationally. So, like this morning, as I was mentioning, the the researcher behind the France Telecom was on my podcast. She's she was coming in from the UK, um, but I get to I get to interview like the thought leaders from around the world on the emerging research and the best practices, and uh, also hear their stories. I, you know, I say it's the stories, the science, and the strategy of workplace resilience, mental health, and suicide prevention. Hope illuminated. Yeah, I mean, this is a global issue. It's not a US right. issue, right? It's, That's yeah. right. So again, thank you so much for joining me here today. And, and thank you listeners for joining us today. I encourage all of you to take a moment, think about your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Take what you've learned here, visit Sally's website for more additional information. Anything you could be doing potentially could be saving a life. Absolutely. You can make a difference. Thank you. And if you're a subscriber to this show, thank you very much. If you're and if you are, I encourage you to let others know, pass on the links for this show so they can benefit from the content and the insights like we heard here today. You can subscribe at the businessgrowthcafe.com or on any podcast platform you like to listen to. And don't forget to join me next week here at the Business Growth Cafe. Sally, thank you so much. Thanks, Angelo. Thank you for listening to today's discussion at the Business Growth Cafe with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and visit our website at www.businessgrowthcafe.com. Read Angelo Ponzi's blogs at www.theponzigroup.com.